Hi, everyone. I'm smiling a little bit because uh, I don't know if my calling is to teach after this experience. Two hours ago, I was still in my pajamas on the couch and like, I can't do this. But here I am. I made it. And um, thanks for the intro, Stu. Um, I'm Hannah, and it's so lovely to see you all here. Um, a couple minutes ago, I thought we were going to have like the smallest crowd of the summer, and I was really excited about that, but it filled out, and I, I love that. Um, but it's truly to be a privilege to be here teaching for my very first time alongside my husband. Um, we've been going to church here at Genesis for almost two years, and we love being part of this beautiful community. And community is actually a big part of what we are talking about today. Um, today we will be spending our time in Philippians 2. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump right in and read the passage together. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and I'm reading this out of the ESV, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And as we've learned through the series on Philippians, we've been in it for a few weeks now, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi from prison where he wrote a few other letters to other churches as well. But this one, Philippians, is unique, this letter, from Paul's other letters, because instead of being designed around one single idea from beginning to end, the book is composed of these short essays, these vignettes. And each of these vignettes revolve around the center point of gravity in the passage, which is now going to be up on the screen. And these verses up on the screen are the focal point of not only this passage, but the whole book. Um, maybe not up on the screen. It's the last half of what we just read. Um, and I remember I memorized this in fifth grade at my Christian um, private school that I went to when I was little. We had to memorize these verses, and they were on like spiral three by five index cards. And this one I memorized, and I think we memorized the New King James Version, which was even harder for my fifth grade brain to understand. I couldn't understand the way it was written with phrases like, a thing to be grasped. Um, and I was so confused by it. But now after learning more about um, this scripture, I realized the language was difficult for me to understand because it's actually a poem. Um, this last half is thought to be uh, an ancient hymn or song, um, possibly, that Paul didn't actually write. And Sam will walk us through the meaning of that poem later. But in short, it's this beautiful little, little interjection in the middle of the whole book, in the middle of the passage. And this poem artistically retells the story of the Messiah, his incarnation, his life, his death, and then his later resurrection and ex exaltation. 
Each of these vignettes through the book of Philippians point back to this poem. And this poem is the Messiah's story. It points back to this poem. Um, Paul takes up through, sorry, throughout the book, Paul takes up key words or ideas from the poem to show how his living as a follower of Jesus means that we see our story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. In Philippians, we're taught all these ideas, humility, service, there's hardship, hope beyond suffering, and unity. This is all found, reflected in the story of Jesus, the gospel, pointed back to that poem, the gospel. So with that in mind, I want to give you a quick bird's eye view of what we're going to jump in today. Um, and then we'll go into the deeper details of what it means. So in the first few verses, we talked about unity within the church. That's Paul's big focus. And then he moves on to instruct that we live out of unity by taking on the Christ-like character of Jesus. And then lastly, in verses 5 through 11, it's that poem we talked about, the passage we turn our attention to, um, which is essentially a pared-down version of the gospel. And it provides the how and the why we're supposed to be united with humility. So let's get started and move into verses 1 to 2 again. Verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my mind, my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here we see that Paul calls us to unity. Paul's call to unity, to be of the same mind with the same love, actually begins a few verses earlier in first, um, Philippians 1, verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we have to start by asking, what are these verses saying about unity? First, we can see that it's teaching us that we are called to unity. What Paul is talking about specifically here is unity as a church community. Um, it's not talking about the worldwide church. I think that's a different topic for another day. A lot, a lot goes into that as well. Uh, I'll I'll give you that one. Um, And as a community connected by our faith, we get to enjoy this community. Um, I think it's truly such a gift to feel loved and of the same mind as others. Um, As some of you already know, I've struggled with migraines for the past couple years. I know I've um, talked to a few of you about that. And then the last year, they've gotten more severe and more frequent. Um, It's really debilitating. We were just talking about it a couple days ago, how I, like, two nights a week, I'm just, like, knocked out, and I don't know when it's going to happen, and it sucks. Um, And over the years, I've really prayed for God to heal me, but more recently, I've stepped out to ask for prayer from our elders in the community. While I wish I could say I was healed, that would be amazing, um, I haven't been, but through stepping out, I've gotten um, to experience not only God's love, but the love of a community, Through vulnerability and sharing my story, even in my pain, I've been able to experience the joy of our unity. And so in this community, we are welcome to partake, the the community that we are in here right now, um, and maybe if you've come from a different place, um, a different community, you've also felt this, but there's just so much joy. It's a treasure. It's a gift. 
And I know I'm not the only one in this room who can say they've experienced that bond of unity within our community, within our church, and been lifted up by that. But this passage urges us more to more than just benefiting personally from our community's unity. It sheds light on the responsibility that comes with our unity. Paul tells the church we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here we see our unity has a purpose. Um, like Kat said a couple weeks ago in teaching on evangelism, we are called to be outwardly focused and to go out from our community for the sake of the gospel. Lost my spot. <laughs> um, yeah, for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus says it best. He talks about the same thing when he talks about our unity and how it's gospel propelling. In John 13, 35, it's recorded that he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus here reminds us that our call to unity is for all people. It's not self-centered. The love for each other that Jesus describes is the glue of our unity. And Jesus gives weight to that love by marking it as the identifier of our faith. Um, but we must all also acknowledge that unity is not simple. Um, it's easy to think on those moments um, where you felt loved by community, but there's also a lot of moments of brokenness. Um, even though from the context of this book even, we see the Church of Philippi is relatively healthy, but Paul still takes significant space in his letter to encourage the church to be unified. And I think this is because unity is so sacred, yet can be so challenging to find amidst diversity and thought and differing opinions in our culture today. And since we're called to unity, we must understand and take the time to reflect on what it means to live out this unity and to be like-minded. Um, the next thing we can learn from the passage is that unity is not agreement, but like-mindedness. Verse 2 of this scripture says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Um, the verse full accord in there, or the, the phrase full accord, I love it, um, it also means the same mind, it's, which is then repeated three times in one single verse. So I think that same mindedness is something we really need to learn and focus on here. And... Um, this verse, this phrase, full accord, is actually used in Joshua to describe soldiers going to bed together to battle. It's used to describe the early Christian church immediately before the Pentecost, before they received the Holy Spirit in Acts. And it's also used in the New Testament to describe the disciples multiple times. Pausing on the disciples is full accord. Um, we see in scripture that disciples, they kind of have this like electric connection. Um, every time we see stories of them um, and every time this verse is used, um, there's this intellectual solidarity between the disciples. They're hungry, they're passionate, and they were so invested in the newly founded church. They loved it. They loved their community. And each time we see the phrase full accord used to describe the disciples, it's used in the context of the disciples then going out and acting. Um, I think there was always this harmony leading to action when we describe the disciples living with full accord. And this points to the power of our like-mindedness. It's super powerful. We must recognize that and see that the full accord is then a catapult for the truth of the gospel. However, um, like-mindedness, like I said a few min minutes ago, is not, um, and unity is not easy to achieve. It does not mean as people or as a community that we don't have disagreements. Um, we definitely will. 
we do. Um, the question is not if we will disagree, but learning how to respond to our disagreements. Um, later we'll talk a lot about humility. Sam will kind of take that. But do we have that humility to listen, to live with full accord? Are we going to allow those disagreements to chop us in half, or are we going to be humble and listen and dialogue and walk through disagreements with the grace towards each other? Um, reflecting again on Jesus' disciples, I think they're such a good um, example of what it is to be in the church. They were there, ground zero, the earliest church followers, earliest Christians. And um, I think we think about their stories, and I know there was misunderstandings between the disciples. There was lying um, and rivalry. And um, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, actually, um, Jesus is saying that someone will betray him. And they're all saying, it can't be me, it can't be me, it can't be me. But then somehow they decide to argue. And they says that an argument arose among them being disciples as to which of them was the greatest. So somehow thinking about the betrayal, they then decided to fight over who's the greatest of the disciples at the Last Supper, not knowing like Jesus is going to die in a few days. So um, the first radical followers of Jesus had a lot to disagree on. They were together all the time. It's like living with like your roommates in college or a spouse, you end up arguing once in a while. <laughs> um, and even at times they got, Rachel can attest to that, my sister-in-law is here, and she, she puts up with our bickering. Um, but the first radical followers of Jesus had a lot to disagree on, and they got caught up in their own pride. But Jesus' response to this passage and to the disciples, he kind of stops them and he says, no, you are to live a kingdom-centric life of service. It's not about you, it's about serving. Um, and that leads us to the how of unity. How do we live as a unified people? And unity is achieved through humble service towards each other. Jesus said it, and um, in this verses, it says, in the verses three and four of this chapter, they teach that the key to finding unity is to set aside selfishness and to humbly put the interest of others first. We see this so marked in Jesus's life. There's countless stories that go over Jesus's service. But his death on the cross is the greatest example of that humble service. In Mark 10, Jesus also says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must also be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our model of Jesus as the humble servant is our guide towards unity. And Sam will cover more on unity through humility up next. But I wanted to just end this scripture of, um, or this portion of the scripture by reminding you that um, all of this is not done by our own power. Um, the passage centers around the gospel story, and that gospel story was there not only as a reminder of Jesus as our ultimate example of humility and unity, but also as the vessel from which we're, we receive the power of the Spirit to walk out unity together. All right. Um, hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Sam. Um, disclaimer up front, I, I think in preparation for this, I was reading it over, and I continued to say the Church of the Philippines. And so if, no, you didn't hear that wrong. There was not another missionary journey to Southeast Asia. It was just my nerves and the black coffee that Hannah made this morning. Um, prophetic, yeah. Uh, so let's look at the scripture again, starting in verses 3 and 4. Uh, 
It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, if we were to keep reading, we proceed to hear proceed to hear the poem that Hannah described earlier, where the story of Christ provides the ultimate example of humility. Um, before we go there, though, I want to pause to discuss the subject of humility itself and why it plays such a central role for followers of Jesus. Why is it that in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. First, humility is the character of Christ. In this passage, Paul is exhorting the church to be doers, to follow Christ is not to abide by a certain set of rules. To follow Christ is to take on his actual character. When I think of Christ's humility, I think of my favorite uh, passage of scripture, which is Matthew 11. Um, and I was introduced to Matthew 11 in a new light a couple years ago when I read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. It's great for like contemplative morning prayer, if that's something you're into. Um, and in this book, Ortland points out that what the theologian Charles Spurgeon originally pointed out, which was that in all gospel accounts, there's only one place where Christ talks about his own heart. So we'll go ahead and look at that now. Starting in verse 28, it says, Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Um... Come to me and learn from uh, gentle and lowly in heart. For my yoke, uh, and you will find rest for your souls, sorry. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We serve a God who describes his character as gentle and lowly. Um, and in his book, Ortland goes on to explain that when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not speaking of the emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. The heart is not part of who we are, but it's the center of who we are. So we serve a God who, at the center of who he is, describes himself as gentle and lowly. The original Greek for the word gentle is preos, meaning mild or meek. Um, and it's not in a weak way, but rather in a way where his great strength is under control. Um, and the original Greek for lowly is tapinos. I probably butchered that. Sorry, all the theologians here. Uh, meaning humble for low in status. Uh, one who looks to one greater than he is, that is God, for direction. Christ's life is the ultimate example of humility, um, of giving power to serve, one, to serve others. We look at his birth. He was not born in an influential city like Rome. He was born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Um, he lived for 30 years in relative obscurity until his earthly ministry, where he was best known for loving unlovable people and humbly serving others. At his death, he was nailed to a cross at, in an execution that was designed to be humiliating. Um, and through his life, through Christ's example, we see that uh, he came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. That's part of the character of what he is, and it's what we're called to as believers. Next, we see that humility is essential for living in a united community, as Hannah has already covered some. And living in a united community is probably the main point of what Paul is using these scriptures for in this context. Um, to understand the role that humility plays in the church a bit better, let's look at a couple other places where it's mentioned in Ephesians and Colossians. Um, it's up there on the screen. I'll start in Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, I, or I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <clears throat> then in Colossians chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Kindness, meekness, patience, gentleness, allowance for each other's faults, forgiveness, the fruits of the Spirit are what are being described. And none of these things are possible without a bedrock of humility in our lives. It takes humility to listen to others, to be gentle to those that have wronged you, to admit when you're wrong, to ask for forgiveness, to admit you don't know it all, to rely on each other for your needs. Yet these are the very things that build a united community. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. What would it look like if we actually put the needs of others in our community before our own and thought of ourselves less? I was reading a book um, about best practices in business the other day, and uh, something I've observed in the business world that if you're in that space, you might have observed as well, is that virtues are like becoming trendy. Like uh, it's like really cool to be like humble because that's how you build like a super like powerful team. And this, what they were describing here was building trust with others in your company. Um, and some of the stuff it mentioned was um, the importance of being present in conversation, being curious about another's life, providing others with undivided focus, um, listening intently, expressing interest in what they say, um, asking questions back. And when I was reading this, all I could think about was, without Christ, what is the motivation for this? Um, maybe it's to feel like a good person. Maybe it makes you feel good. Um, maybe it's for profit or for gain. But what happens when it stops being profitable and when it stops feeling good? In humility, Paul is calling the church of Philippi to the exact opposite of this. He's asking that we count others more significant than ourselves, to look to the interests of others because of Christ. No catch, no gain promised in return, but we are asked to look to the interests of others because that's what Christ did for us. And because that's what fosters a Christ-centered community. Um, and finally, we see that humility is strength. Um, and unlike so many can perceive, humility is not passive. It does not involve being downcast on yourself. Humility is the strength to deny your own strength. It's the courage to admit that you can't love yourself, or you can't love by yourself, that you can't be good by yourself. It's the strength to accept the transforming love of Christ. Humility requires that we give, that we pour out. By doing these things, we release the stronghold of sin in our lives, and we welcome and create the soil from which spiritual formation or spiritual formation in Christ can take root in our lives. Um, I had this moment in preparation for the sermon when I realized that God has not called us to humility because it's good or virtuous or nice, though it's all those things, but he's actually called us to humility because that is how we reach him. We reach him through humility. We submit to God through humility. Um, that's where spiritual formation comes. It's the only way we can reach him. Um, next, I want to pivot to the last part of this passage, which is verses 5 through 11, where we'll look at humility modeled through the example of Christ. Um, and as mentioned earlier, scholars say that verses 2, 5 through 11 are a hymn or a creed um, used liturgically in worship. 
Um, so I want to read that passage again quickly. Um, so go ahead and close your eyes. I just want to read it to you in the context of knowing that this is a declaration that the Church of Philippi may have said together. Have this mind among yourself, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> Uh, this poem is a condensed version of the gospel, like Hannah had mentioned. Um, and the verses can be thought of like this. You can put the diagram on the screen. Uh, yes, I did make this diagram myself, in case you're wondering. And Stu, my services are available for your creative agency. I'll send you my resume. Um, I didn't come up with this idea by myself. It was actually originally thought of by Francis Chan and his exposition on the book of Philippians, of the Philippines, of Philippines. Oh, I wrote, I wrote the Philippines. That's why I kept saying it. Okay. Um, so first, we kind of see this. We see this like half loop here, where it starts with God in His preexistent glory. He renounces that. He's incarnated. There's the crucifixion, and then he's exalted in his position, right? So in verse 6, it says, Do not consider, he did not consider equality with God as something to his, be used for his own advantage, um, but emptied himself. Um, and by emptying himself, he took on the form of a servant. This is the astonishing giving nature of Jesus, that he did not consider being God grounds for getting but for giving. Um, he emptied himself, which can be understood in the Greek to deprive or veil, which means that uh, while Jesus remained fully God, uh, he gave up his rights as a deity to serve. These verses echo Genesis 3, where Adam, in the pursuit to be like God, attempted to obtain equality with God. And it highlights our fallen nature to do the same, to snatch, to take Yet what Jesus has called us to do is to give, not to grasp. And in a culture like Orange County, how do we start to adopt a mentality of downward mobility, of giving, as opposed to upward mobility, of obtaining more? Um, at the bottom here, we see his crucifixion um, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ endured the physical agony of the cross for us, the abandonment, the shame. He received the wrath of God in place for our sins, but he did not stay dead. We see Christ in his exalted position. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This was the result of Christ's humility. There's an upward shift in the passage that we can see where Jesus is declared Lord. And there's a connection here to Isaiah 42, uh, where Yahweh is described to have every knee bow before him and every tongue swear that he is Lord. Um, Jesus, we see, has the same exalted lordship as the Father. And by giving the name Lord um, to him, God declared the deity of Jesus. Really, the most astonishing part about this is that we may know him. Um, and in humility, we must cast aside our own power and instead fall at the feet of Jesus to know him. 
So some final thoughts and takeaways. Um, first is just study the life of Jesus. There's a reason that the center of this letter is the story of Jesus. It says in 1 Peter 2, um, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To follow in his steps, we need to understand his character and his motivations. We're called to study it and to imitate it. Um, next is to practice unity through humility. Um, humility and service to others requires us to give things up that we perceive to be valuable to ourselves. That's why it's so hard, um, is that it requires you to take yourself from the center of your life and put others in the center of your life. And just as Christ was called to veil his own deity for our benefit, we are called to put others first. Um, think about what you're attempting to control or hang on to today, and how is that preventing you from serving others? And finally, just memorize the poem. Um, in memorizing this poem, you'll be joining a long and rich history of many members of the church who have done the same. Um, and it encapsulates the entire power of the gospel and the example that we have to follow just in a few verses. So uh, I guess in closing, our prayer for you is that as you memorize this poem, but you're reminded in new ways of the majesty and the gospel of Jesus and uh, what it's like to follow him. That's it. Thanks. Thank you, guys. That was excellent. Wow. They've never taught before. Are you kidding me? I don't know if I have a gift. Well, we can confirm you do have a gift. That was outstanding. Um, thank you. Thank you. Really, really good.